Hello, my dear friends. Welcome back to another episode of Torah Game Changers on Think Torah. We are a project of the Intentional Jew Podcast Network where we encourage all Jews of all types to live a bit more intentionally. Today's pod, I sit down with Yaakov Klein, and I'll give him an intro in a minute. And it was an amazing conversation about the importance of what he feels is this spirit and the Hasidic spirit that he wants to bring back to mainstream Judaism. And uh, it was very inspiring to speak to somebody who's so fired up and excited about what he does. Before we get into the conversation, Rabbi Yaakov is also um, a musician, singing his own songs and the songs of others. And I came upon this song and I, I asked him if I could use it. This is uh, an awesome song. So before we get started, here's Yaakov. Welcome back, everyone, to Think Torah. Here's another episode of Torah Game Changers. Today I have with me Rabbi Yaakov Klein. He's the founder of the Lost Princess Initiative, the LPI, which is helping Jews connect to the soul of our tradition. LPI sends out a Hasidus daily, and it's distributed on WhatsApp. It can also be found on their Facebook page. He's also the author of the Thank You Hashem newsletter, which just reached its first year anniversary. To date, he's authored two books, The Sunlight of Redemption, which is uh, a translation of Lakute Moran. He's also the author of Sparks of Bidich- from Berdichev. His next book, which is coming, confirmed the story of our lives. It's an in-depth understanding of Rabbi Nachman's famous story, The Lost Princess, which will be in stores soon. Yaakov is also a lecturer and musician, just trying to share the inner dimension of the Torah. He's a contributor both on YU Torah and Times of Israel, and his articles, poems, and books have reached and inspired thousands of Jews worldwide. Yaakov, I'm sorry about that. Thank you for joining me. And here you are, guys, Yaakov Klein. I would add one final thing, which I think is underscores the whole thing and important, is aspiring Jew. Sometimes it sounds very uh, impressive when you hear all these things. But the truth is that at the core of it is just a Jew who's trying to find his way. And if you can help other people, even one other person, find their way as well on this journey along with him, then Dayenu. That's the goal. That's, um, that's such an important point that I say that also about myself. I'm just a Jew and all things that are extensions of that Jewness. And I do this in my home. I do this in my family. And then Bezra Hashem, it, it, it gets um, expanded outwards. So Yaakov, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you came from, but mainly why? Why is this, why is the Lost Princess Initiative somewhere that you, that you feel so, something that you feel so important to uh, project and to do? Sure. Okay. So let me, let me first begin just by way of context, because I think that 
in the beginning when I started with the Lost Princess Initiative, we did a soft launch, which we have not yet done the full launch. There's a website coming. There's a lot of programming. Actually, tonight we're about to announce another program. There's a webinar course that's going to be based on the book that's coming and a lot of incredible, incredible things, um, a lot of resources. So it's it's it, it's 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 sort of in its infancy, um, but Pesiyat Adeshmaya, we're off to a great start. So a lot of people, you know, when I first went public with the name The Lost Princess Initiative, for those that aren't familiar with Rabbi Nachman's tale, The Lost Princess, which this this organization is based off of, right, because the book, The Story of Our Lives, is an exploration and elucidation of the story, and off the back of the ideas in the book, the whole organization is built. So people are like, is this some sort of shidduch initiative? Is this like, what's The Lost Princess? What does this mean? You know, who is she? And, 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 and when did I have her? When did I lose her? So... Should we go find her? Should we go find her, right? My father-in-law, <laughs> you know, is, uh, is busy with that all the time, asking me if I found uh, the Lost Princess yet. Um, but um, I think it's very, very important just in the beginning to explain a little bit on a basic level the metaphor, which will then understand or bring us into the understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, right? And so just on a very, very basic level, Rabbi Nachman's story, without getting into the details, Hashem, I hope you all buy the book. Um, Rabbi Nachman's story is basically about a princess that gets lost, and that we could have guessed, right? That's in the title, The Lost Princess. And this princess is taken to a place called the Palace of the Lotov, a place of no good. The paradigm of evil, the paradigm of darkness, and... A viceroy, the second in command of the king, chooses of his own accord out of his great love for the king to go on a journey to seek her. And the entire story, even though it's called The Lost Princess, is really more about the viceroy, about the search for the princess than the actual finding. Spoiler alert, at the very end, Rabbi Nachman says he finds her, but we don't even know how. Rabbi Nachman doesn't actually tell us how he finds her. And the Mepharshim explained that it's talking about the coming of Mashiach, it's talking about the release of the Shekhinah, us coming back into that intimate relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, which it wasn't in Rabbi Nachman's purview, right, or his ability or his rishus, you know, he wasn't given permission to reveal exactly how that would come about. Be that as it may, the majority of the story is talking about the search of the Viceroy, and it's not a pretty search. It's not very clear. It's not very easy. There are many, many triumphs, but more disasters and downfalls and slip-ups and the conditions that the princess eventually gives him that he needs to fulfill in order to free her. He manages to hold on to for a whole year until the very last day. And then he eats from a tree that he wasn't supposed to eat from, an obvious reference to Adam Chava, or he drinks from a river that he wasn't supposed to drink from. And that's a reference to the Chet Egel, the Tubatid Mikdash, a lot of symbolism in the story. But ultimately, it's about the struggle and the journey of this viceroy and the yearning that he has and that conviction that there is a princess and that she needs to be freed. And it's about that sort of internal and emotional and spiritual journey that he takes to free the princess. Now, what is the princess, right? That's of ultimate importance in order to understand what the import of the viceroy's journey is. And the Mepharshim all explain that the princess is on a very basic level the reference to the neshama. The neshama in the Svarmak Doshim is always associated with the feminine. The neshama is always associated with the internal point, that emotional aspect of connectivity, that relationship aspect with Avodah Hashem, with others. When we say that a marriage has neshama, what does that mean? It means that there's a passion there. It means that there's an intimacy there. It means that there's a real connection there. And the princess becomes lost both in our lives as individuals, but I think perhaps more importantly as a community. And over the journey that Rabbi Nachman begins his story with the words, on a journey I told a story. Over the journey that we take as individuals, 
I say from childhood to adulthood, but all of the different journeys throughout our lives and all the ups and all the downs and all the different areas and stages and, 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 and different experiences that we go through throughout the human condition, the princess gets lost. And that excitement of living, forget about spiritually for a second, just the excitement of living and the appreciation of the little blessings of life and seeing the beauty of a sunset and standing in front of a wonder like the Niagara Falls, something becomes lost, we become numb. And we, we become so wrapped up in our adult, sophisticated pursuits that sometimes we lose that spirit of youth. We lose that passion, that vitality, that natural joy that every child wakes up with in the morning and that excitement to explore the world where I was walking with my son yesterday and we see a little snail on the floor and it blew his mind. You know, he's standing there for five minutes watching this snail. And I said to myself, if only I can, I can be able to access even a percentage of this, how different my life would be. So in our own lives, emotionally, and in that experience, we lose the princess communally. Spiritually speaking, we've lost the princess. Over the journey of the Jewish enterprise, throughout all of the ups and many, many, many devastating downs, we've come to this strange place where in America, after the Holocaust, we've built up a remarkable, remarkable society and institution of Judaism, which is incredible if you think about it. In a very short period of time, I understand the state of Israel physically and also spiritually managed to build itself up miraculously. But the societal institution of Yiddishkeit, of from Judaism in America, with all the yeshivas and the network of Kololim and all of the minion factories and the Pesach hotels, not this past year, but this coming year, and the publications and the education programs and, and, and the gemachs galore for anything that a person can need, what the Frum community has managed to create is nothing short of miraculous, but oftentimes, and we discuss this a lot in the book, this is one of the big pair of buzzwords for the LPI and for this book, The Story of Our Lives, with the increase in quantity and the external aspect of the six sons of the, of the king, as opposed to the princess, her six brothers, which is the masculine sort of, sort of, sort of external sort of grand aspect of, 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 of quantitative uh, accomplishment and development. For some reason, the more we focus on the quantity, the, the quality that we're trying to protect and nurture seems to slip out of our out of our hands and through our fingers. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, there are more people learning Torah today than ever before. But the question is, are we just pumping out, you know, ro robots? Or are we pumping out people who are just coming out on an assembly line that are expected to do a certain thing and that this is a societal expectation, what the, what the Navi Yishai calls mitzvah sanashim alumada, just to go ahead by road and, 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 and to do what we do because this is our background and this is what we're expected to do. But what happened to the neshama? What happened to the princess of wonder? What happened to the connection, the consciousness, the, the, the understanding that Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam means that it's the ultimate means toward the end of relating to HaKadosh Baruch as opposed to the end unto itself, where Liman Torah and Yeshivas can become sometimes, again, Chas Vashalom to, you know, this is just hypothetical. Hopefully it's, it's not the way that I'm describing and it's certainly not the way that I'm describing. Baruch Hashem, there's a, there's a balance and it's very much in the middle. We're trying to move the needle a couple of degrees closer to the princess side of things. But of course it's a it's a mix. But oftentimes you can have in Yeshivas where Liman Torah is, is taken out of this experiential relationship building 
and this consciousness that we're sitting with the no Saint HaTorah and connecting with him in the deepest way and it becomes about how many daf you could learn, right? And, and what kind of shetel you could say and how you can get up and impress this one and impress that one and we're trying to go ahead and to bring back that neshama. So that's what the story is. That's what the book is about. There's a lot of details in between. It's about a 600 page book. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of symbolism and depth on every chapter and to me, this is my personal mandate and my personal mission. It's something that I felt throughout my journey through the yeshiva system and I went to wonderful yeshivas. I always felt that there was mashu chaserli, that something was missing. A focus on wearing a hat and jacket, a focus on, on, on sitzes out, a focus on white shirts or blue shirts or whatever, whatever these things were, it always frustrated me. I don't know exactly why, but I always had it in me that I just felt like, is this what this is all about? That a Kodesh Baruch who came on Tarsin and said, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha. And we had Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov and we brought monotheism to the world and we had the Ten Commandments that change world society and this is what Yiddishkeit is about? This is what it's all about? How did you get introduced to, to Hasidus and this, this inner dimension, the more pnimius of, of living? So th- this itself is a little bit of an interesting, in- interesting journey itself. The truth is that it begins with my father, where everything usually begins with one's father. My father, even though he grew up in a post-Holocaust, child of Holocaust survivors, Hungarian home that was not Hasidish. Hungarian, historically, is, is, is called Oberlander. It's like sort of in between. It's a mix. They weren't the Misnagdim, right? They weren't the Hasidim. The Chassab Soifer Kiyadua was very, very close with all the Hasidic masters. And he himself incorporated a lot of Sod and a lot of that feeling. Sometimes if, you, uh, you know, if, if, if you're not looking at the, at the heading in the Seif Chassab Soifer, you could, you could think he's wearing a Strymel, you know, sometimes, right? And, uh, and, and so... He came from a home that wasn't misnagdic, certainly not, but at the same time wasn't in any way, you know, connected to a particular Hasidus. We come from a long line of Rabbanim. My great, 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 great grandfather, five grades up, Shmuel Shmelka Salisher, was actually related to Shmelka of Nikolsburg, who was a Talmud of the Magad of Mizrich, one of the early Hasidic masters, brother of the, of the Afla, and he was named after him. But at the same time, he was a Talmud of Chassam Soifer, and his son, and their children, all the way down until the Holocaust, when two generations were murdered, Shemikam Damam, were all Rav and Av based in, 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 in over large swaths of, of, of that Hungarian area, Salish and, and, and Halmin and different areas of, of, over there. So again, very rabbinic, very connected to, you know, to Limanat Torah and to, and, to, and to Torah education, but not connected to Hasidus. My father learned in a number of yeshivas. He learned in a yeshiva Taravadas, right, which I'm sure you're familiar with and many of the listeners are familiar with. And in Taravadas, as he was learning there, the regular sort of uh, you know, yeshiva system, the yeshiva, uh, uh, you know, curriculum. So he noticed that there was one bacher in the yeshiva who seemed to have something special, a special spark. I don't know that he would have known to call it the neshama or the princess, but in the context of our conversation thus far, we can understand that he found it. He found it. Or Akalpanin, he was searching for it, right? And he was striving for it. And he was living in such a way that my father was, was, was sure there was something that he was privy to that nobody else was because he was the most popular guy in the yeshiva. He had such a chis about him. His davening was with fire and his learning was with fire. Always with simcha and with amuna. And, and he had something that my father was, was, was desperately searching for. And my father's a big mavakesh. My father's a real, real mavakish, mavakish, always searching, always seeking to grow. And, uh, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's built himself over the years into a tremendous, tremendous Ovedasha. And my father approached him and he said, what's your secret? What's the secret sauce? What do you have that nobody has? And he answered him with one word. And it was a word that my father hadn't even heard about. And that those that had heard about that word 
would run in the other direction because of the stigma around it. And that word was Bresley. That word was Bresley. This Talmud's name, who was my father's classmate, I don't remember his first name, his last name was Geltzeler. His father, Reb Herschel, uh, I'm sorry, not Geltzeler, Geltzeler was another very famous classmate of Habrusa, my father. But this, this, um, this classmate's last name was Wasilski. His father, of Herschel Wasilski, was the one address in America, in the United States, where at that time you could buy Breslov Sfarim. He sold them out of his basement. He was the only place. Now you can find them in every bookshop and wherever you're looking. And even in a pizza shop, they'll bring them to you, right? And there was no place in America that you could find the, uh, the, the, the Breslov Sfarim in, except for this. Of Herschel Wasilski's basement, he sold them out of his house. He ran the American Friends for Breslov. Uh, uh, you know, out of his out of his home, and he was like the headquarters for Breslov, really for 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 the for the Eretz Yisrael Diga Breslov, the European Breslov. Although there was a Tzvi Rosenfeld, he was a little bit giving over a more Americanized and in, 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 in his unique style. But my father was drawn through this child of Rav Herschel Wasilski to Rav Herschel himself. They spent a year learning Lukutimran together, and. Anybody who knows, you know, who's uh, who's really serious about sitting down and giving Breslov a chance and learning Kutumran, it's a it's a game changer. I mean, there's there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. It's a different experience, different experience of Limanat Torah. And uh, my father was totally taken by it. My father went the next year to go to Eretz Yisrael to learn by Rav Shlaim of Alba in Be'er Yaakov. And this Rav Herschel Wasilski sent my father with a number of letters. And these letters were addressed to some of the leading lights, the leading names in the Breslov community of Yaakov Meir Shachter, some names you'll be familiar with. Rev. Levi Yitzhak Bender, the previous generation of Shmuel Shapira, Rev. Kenig and Svat, Rev. 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 Cheshen, the father of Rev. Tzvi Cheshen of the Mir of Mir fame. And in this letter, it said, take this American Bacher and, and, and be Mekarifin and bring him close. And my father immediately had an in with people who others, you know, certainly now, I mean, you want to go to Rav Yaakov Meir Shachti, you have to wait for weeks, if not months sometimes to get into him. My father was just became a Ben Bayis, Mamish, by Rav Yaakov Meir Shachti. He slept in his bedroom. He was by his house all the time. This was before, this was good because Breslau was just, was just fledgling. It was starting, right? And uh, it hadn't blown up yet into what it is, you know, Baruch Hashem today, and it continues to grow by leaps and bounds daily. So we grew up in a house where Breslau was certainly on our consciousness. It wasn't pushed in the sense of learning the Breslov Svarim. I never opened the Breslov Sefer, certainly not in the context of Limud with my father until my adult life on my own, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, and uh, my father never took us to Uman. It's me and my older brother. My father took my older brother once, and that was it. The rest are, you know, we have six sisters, um, and I'm the youngest of, of eight. And um, so from that aspect, there wasn't this very strong, like, 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 understanding what Breslov was. It was just like, we knew uh, my father's Breslov. We didn't, you know, understand it. We, it wasn't something that like, I even knew what it meant. My father would speak about the tzaddikim a lot, you know, which in Breslov is, is a very strong, you know, foundation is Amunis Chachamim. My father was very, very strong in that. Um, you know, and Rabbi Nachman was one of the tzaddikim that my father would speak about often. My father would always say Mishalim and stories. We grew up with some of the, uh, the art scroll, uh, you know, and BRI, Breslov Research Institute. We grew up with some of their children's books. Actually, The Lost Princess was one of them that I connected very much with and uh, the illustrations by David Sears are you know just a very very strong part of my childhood that obviously led to you know to what I'm I'm involved with today but throughout that experience it wasn't a personal identity this was what my father was and um, that's that's really where it remained when I came to Eretz Yisrael to learn I was in a little bit of a of a of a of a, of a, of a difficult phase in my life 
um, without getting to the pratim, just emotionally and spiritually, I, was, I felt a little bit out of touch. I felt a little bit disenfranchised, you know, like I mentioned before, of, you know, the yeshiva system and going through the regular teenage stuff. I had skipped eighth grade, so I was a year younger um, when it was time to leave high school. I was 17 years old, as opposed to most of the class that was 18. And I came straight to Eretz Yisrael. And I came, like you mentioned in our pre-podcast discussion, I came to a yeshiva called Shari Tibuna, which was led, if you'll remember, of El Yelevin, right? Um, who anybody who, uh, who 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 knows and who hung around with him knows that he's a singular personality and a very charismatic and unique individual, a very big mix and synthesis between mind and heart. This was Rabbi Levin, and he Mamish took me under his wing, and 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 you know I was I was his. I was his project, you know, and we sat and we learned together. And we spent many long hours talking together. And he really reintroduced me, you know, to Yiddishkeit in this very beautiful way that he has to be able to mix the Limanat Torah aspect with the other elements of Yiddishkeit that are oftentimes obscured in the pursuit of Limanat Torah as an, as an end, as opposed to the means. For example, Shabbos Kodesh, right? It was the first time that, you know, really Shabbos is an avod that was on our consciousness. Eretz Yisrael, you know, we were coming to learn in Israel. I wasn't passionate, you know, we don't come from a Zionist background. I wasn't passionate about the land. But Rabbi Levin, you know, reintroduced us to that, you know, to tzaddikim, to what that meant tzaddikim. And where did he get this from? Rabbi Shlomo Kabach. And as strange as it may sound for Rabbi Levin, having learned in Long Beach and having learned in Lakewood and having learned in, in you know, some of the finest uh, Litvish yeshivas where I think back when he was in Long Beach, you know, you had to play Kalbach under your covers at night and you weren't allowed to have a guitar. Obviously, all that has changed also. We'll discuss that as well. But uh, Rabbi Levin was very heavily impacted, you know, by Rabbi Shlomo. And so he had that side to him. You know, he was a Bucky in Svasemes and he's not a chassid by any stretch of the imagination. There are a lot of things that he doesn't subscribe to. And he's, you know... He wore like a, a long, uh, like a, I don't know, record. I don't know what it's called. I think when he goes, he to, when he goes right? to America more, he wore that. On Shabbos, yes. On Shabbos, he wears a front. Yeah, Shabbos. Shabbos, he wears a front. He has long payas that he puts like a gear under his. So he's, he's a big, he's a big mix. He's a big mix. To some, it was confounding. And to me, it was comforting. It was beautiful to be able to see someone who, who brings it together. So through Rabbi Levin, I began to go to the source and I began to listen to Rabbi Shlomo. And one of Rabbi Levin's lines about Shlomo Kabach is that music was his smallest talent. People think that Rabbi was a performer, was a musician. Music was his smallest talent. What was his biggest talent? Either his biggest talent was people, was relationships. He would remember your name after 30 years, having met you one time and just exchange a name and you're the holiest and the sweetest. And 30 years later, he would remember you. He had a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, memory and a phenomenal knack for relationships. But more so than that, was his ability to give over chasidus was chad bedar, chad bedar. And many people listen to him and they'll say, oh, that it's simplistic, right? Many people will listen and sound like he's, he's, he's watering it down. But then you go back to the sources and you open up the sources in the actual Sfar Makdash and the Ishbitzer, which he quoted so much from the Meyashilach and the Beis Yaakov and the, and the Seydi Shara. And you look at those tzaddikim and you see the piece inside and you say, he really got it. He really understood it in a way that I never would have understood it. You learn the Kutimran. Sometimes he's reading out of a page of the Kutimran. And I know that lesson. And I know that Rabbi Nachman didn't say that, right? I know, I know what he's reading from. Kukyud Beza. Something he's reading from some tyrant. And then I open it up and I'm, and I'm learning it. And I say, you know something? This is exactly what Rabbi Nachman was saying. This is exactly what he meant. And because he wasn't giving it over in, a, in, a, in an intellectual sort of way, so those that are looking for that are a little bit turned off. But the truth is, Rabbi Shlomo would say about those that came from, became from through him and then left him in search for greener pastures, right? Rabbi Shlomo would say, they thought that I was kindergarten and now they're graduating to a college. 
But he said, they don't realize that I was giving them college stuff. And he's absolutely right. It's the deepest. Mom's the deepest. And so it was the, it was the teachings of Rav Shlomo that I, that I was drawn to. I'm a musical guy. And so I was drawn to the music, certainly. But it was the teachings. It was the teachings. It was the stories that I would just sit under my covers and mom would cry, you know, and, and, and feel what he was describing. This Yiddishkeit that was lost. This pre-war experience of Yiddishkeit in, 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 in the simplest sense of the Tehillim Zagar who sat in the back of the shul, who didn't have, you know, that grand sort of, uh, you know, that, 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 that grand portfolio filled with his Yiddishkeit and what it's all about and what he's able to do. But it's just these tear-drenched words of Tehillim. And to hear about Jews like this, hear about the Laman Vav Tzaddikim, that on the outside they look like the simplest people and their mamas holding up the world, to hear all these concepts you never know, you know, all these different catchphrases and all these different words that Rabbi would use to describe Judaism, Yiddishkeit, you know, mamish Yiddishkeit. It cut, it cut into me in a very, very deep way. And when he started talking about Rabbi Nachman, Kedur of Shlomo, you know, drew very much from Breslov. He was a little bit Chabad. He was a little bit Breslov. He was a little bit Majitz. He was a little bit Babav. He was very much Ishbitz. There's a recording where he says, I'm an Ishbitz or Chassid. And those who understand the theology of Ishbitz can also understand where Rabbi Shlomo fits into the context of Ishbitz, right? And in, in, in some of his personal decisions. But Rabbi Shlomo drew very heavily from Breslov. And Rabbi Shlomo, to me, was cool. You know, as an 18-year-old and you're hearing about this hippie rabbi and you hear and, and you go down to the Moshav and you see the way that they relax and the way that they chill and the way that they that they that they you know that they run their community over there. You spend the Shabbos, you go to the Moshav fair. It's a culture, you know, a culture has sprung up around Rav Shlomo that was intensely cool to me. And I was I, I was I was in. You know, I bought trailers and I was wearing these scarves and I I was like I was all in. Because of Rabbi Levin's Kalbach connection, he has a very deep affinity for the city of Tzvat where a lot of those sort of chevra hang out. And so once a year, in addition to a Shabbos in, in, uh, in Svat, he would move the whole yeshiva up for a full week. And it wasn't vacation. It was a regular yeshiva in Svat. And every day he would give shir outside and, 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 and we would go for walking tours and manage three sadarim, regular yeshiva, nothing different, but just a change of pace. And uh, it was on that week that we took with the yeshiva Shari Tuna in Svat where all of it was like the perfect storm. It were, were, were you know, it was the Kalbach, it was the Breslev, it was my emerging interest in Avodah Hashem through Rav Shlomo, through the Limanat Torah that I was doing in Rav Levin's yeshiva. And I'll never forget, it was the Shabbos that we went to to uh, to daven with some of the chaver in the Breslev shul there in Svat. If you've ever had the opportunity of davening there, it's it just aesthetically, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous shul, right? Uh, murals and paintings and, and and woodwork, and it's 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 glorious. And for some reason, the Breslev community there in terms of the way that they look they just have a very charismatic i don't know if, the, if it's the chain makam al yashveha you know there, there's a certain chain there they're, they're very good looking they're very they're, they're, you know just very distinguished looking uh looking jews and um let me just let me just x, x, x that out so it doesn't interrupt us and um so 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 we were dominating there and, and, and the davening, the Baltfila davening so beautifully. And there's dancing, the And there's just such a, such a, a, a unique svat sort of atmosphere that I was privy to that when they started clapping during Mariv, which Breslev, because of a few tires in Rabbi Nachman, in, in the Mems, if you look in Tara, Mem Gimel to basically Mem Hey, Mem Vav, there's lessons about the secret of, of clapping during davening, which many Hasidim do, Karlin does as well. But in Breslev, it's an Avoida. You know, it's a, it's a minig in Breslev to clap during davening. And when they started clapping, I, I started clapping. And, and when the guy next to me started clapping, my friend, I said, you can't, you can't clap. You're not Breslov. 
I'm restless. And, and I just, in that moment, I just felt at home. I felt this is my place. This is, and, and, and everything, you know, snowballed from there. I came back to Yerushalayim and I started, you know, looking, is there a place like Svat in Yerushalayim? And I found a small place called Nakuda Tova, where, you know, it was a sort of interesting sort of, uh, you know, a mix of a curve organization and, and, you know, and, and, you know, working with struggling people, but at the same time, you know, very, very strong, uh, you know, starm over there and people learning and sharing that were being given. And so I gravitated toward that. Um, the first time I walked in there, Mata Frank was giving share in Yiddish, which I understand having gone to a Hasidic Shacheder. I can't speak a word of it, but I can, I can understand it perfectly, um, which is a big, you know, a big privilege and asset. And, um, you know, that, that, that sheer just propelled me to buy Lukut Imran. And from the first page, you know, I started from the beginning. I'll never forget. I came back to Yeshiva. I opened up the Torah Aleph, which I eventually wrote a book on. And um, my life was changed. My life was changed. And it was here in this limud of Lukut Imran. And then I went to Kedusha Slevi, which I also wrote my first book on. And throughout the years, journeying through this Farah Makdash, that I realized that this is the answer. The Hasidus, many people think, is, uh, is, is a societal Culture, many people think that it's a mode of dress, it's a language, it's minhagim. But the truth is that all of this is what we would call the quantity of Hasidus, which is paradoxical. Because Hasidus at its core, if you think that all the Tamidia Hamagi dressed alike, I mean, they all came from different parts of Europe, they all came from different backgrounds, there was no uniformity, there was no conformity. Hasidus at its core was a, was a rebellion. Hasidus at its core was a counterculture movement, which is why it swept up this grassroots support throughout Eastern Europe and eventually throughout the world with such fury and fire. That's exactly why. And paradoxically, throughout the years, as there was this counter pull between the Misnagdim and the Hasidim both making concessions like I mentioned before in Long Beach now they're doing Kumsitzin and Panovich did a tish you know two years ago so on both sides there's been concessions but largely with regard to the limit and the consciousness Hasidus has very much adopted the regular yeshiva style of learning and in doing so has lost much of that pre-institutionalized spirit of the Baal Shem and in the Svarim the spark is there that's where it's contained and when a person learns the Sfarim, and a person, which in many Hasidus, and they don't, pretty much Breslov and Chabad are the two Hasidusin that are still really engaged on a daily basis with their Hasidus. That's a great point, because also also through the, the LPI, through the Last Princess Initiative, you're, um, I noticed this, that you're very text-based. Your shiurim are text-based. Everything you put out every day is text-based. The videos are less, but everything is text-based. And that's fascinating how that's an important to source it back to the original sources. That's exactly right. And when, and, and, and when, when you stop a person on the street and you, and you ask them, you know, in your mind, you know, what's, what's, what, what are the two strongest Hasidic presences? Many people don't even know the Chabad is Hasidish. Like, <laughs> I grew up, it was only until later on that I realized that these men with the funny squashed, you know, down hats are Hasidish, Hasidish in the same way that the Baba is Hasidish, right? But if they are familiar a little bit with Hasidish, they'll say Breslau and the Chabad are taking over the world. I mean, right? The, the, why? Why? Because those two are founded in their texts. If Karlim would be mamish, be making star and be'ion in base Aaron, they would also be on fire with that same passion of understanding that 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 Hasidus is at its core a messianic movement. Now, what's different about Hasidus as a messianic movement and all the failed messianic movements over the past two hundred years, many with devastating uh, with devastating effects. For example, Shabbat Tzvi. For example, the difference in Hasidus is that it's a messianic but not about a figure, but rather about a consciousness that we believe is a process that has already begun, 
and will continue to unfold until the Mashiach comes. So in that way, it combines the Messianic fervor and belief of each and every Jew, of every Jew with an optimistic and perhaps a radical optimism that the sun has already begun to rise. So Hasidus at its core is a messianic movement. And when, 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 when we understand it as such, we can understand that if we're really learning Hasidus and if we're really connected to this consciousness and understanding that this is the answer for so many of the symptoms and so many of the problems that we have today, which I'll mention, I'll talk about again after this sentence, I don't want to lose it. Once we understand that and we're based in the text, so it becomes something that we have to share. It becomes something that we have to spread. It becomes something that we have to bring people into, not in a way of this like cultish sort of aspect, but just to go ahead and to remind people that we're not trying to make you anything that you're not. Hasidus is trying to go ahead and to reveal that which is already inside of you, that which you're deeply searching, which many people can't even express or articulate what it is that we're missing but we're missing something and it manifests in so many different angles and so many different roots and Hasidah says dress the way that you're dressing keep the place that you're living keep your shul Yiddishkeit is Yiddishkeit as it is where you are but it's a shift in consciousness that sort of takes ingredients that were in a fridge that's still a cake and puts it into a toaster oven and it's the same cake with the same ingredients but mashua chert it's, it's a different experience that's Hasidus. And this is why I feel so passionate about sharing these texts, these holy words, and these teachings of the tzaddikim, because I'm trying to go ahead and to give people this awareness that, yes, there are sim- yes, there are problems in Yiddishkeit, and there's issues, and there's talking in shul issues, and, you know, so many across the board, there are mental health issues, there are addiction issues. The from community, you know, Lianhara is, 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 is already plagued, you know, with, with, with many things that are particular and unique to our experience and we believe when I say we I mean myself and my Rebbe of Moshe Weinberger who over the years has come to you know has come or has become to me the paradigm you know and that we, we call the captain of the ship of Hasidus for non-Hasidim we believe collectively as a community and it's growing by leaps and bounds daily and LPI is a part of it we believe that this is the answer that this is the remedy and that it's a remedy in the way of Hikdim Refuah Lamaka that a Kaddish Baruch Hu gave the refuah 200 years ago before the plague and that it's it literally speaking to all of the challenges of our time that if we just did this and if we just ins- instituted and it doesn't have to be with the word chasidus or the name chasidus but if we were learning these limudim in our yeshivas and if we gave our nishamos of this generation our children in elementary school and in high school and certainly in base medrash and when we're preparing them for marriage everything pininius Everything Alderech Remez, Alderech Sod, what Avram Avinu and what Yitzhak Avinu represent in as much as what they did and how to study their lives, we believe that it would change the game and that it would increase the consciousness of Mashiach and it would go ahead and literally enable the sun of Geula, the sunlight of redemption, as the title of my second book, continue to rise until we should be Zelchad the Mashiach Tzikinim. Amen. So, but this, is, um, this is much deeper to you than just than just uh, Hasidic rituals. That's not what this is. Uh, perhaps they come along, but it's so much deeper to you. And you, we see that with the fact that it's all rooted in text and it's all rooted in the the svarim, the svarim themselves. Yeah, I mean, people people ask me all the time, you know, because I, I, I have been, in addition to my teaching capacities as the, you know, founder and director of LPI, I give a weekly shear. Now, we're, again, like I mentioned before, we're still in the kickoff stage, believe it or not. We're, we're reaching thousands of people over the world, but it's just the very, very, very beginning. We have grand plans that have been in the motions for years, you know, you mentioned in, you know, literally years in, in, in in terms of, uh, you know, th- that initial conception and for many, many months 
up to a year of actual practical laying the foundation. You mentioned the website. We mentioned the website. The book that Be'ez HaShem is in typesetting. It's going to be in stores worldwide very shortly. And the webinar course that we're going to be launching, a full curriculum examining each and every uh, one of what we call the Lost Princess Principles, 25 foundational core principles that emerge from the book that we're going to be exploring in the context of the text inside the Svarim, where they come from, to see the words of the Tzaddik. But in my capacities, I've also been, you know, a Rebbe in, in Yeshiva, right? For the past year and a half, I've been teaching in Maseret Sion. Now I'm on a little bit of a break to focus on LPI stuff, but I've been, I've been I taught there, I taught in Eshat Torah for a bit. And so I have, you know, students who are both connected to the LPI and learning with me that way, in addition to hundreds of Jews around the world who I know, don't even know about, and contact me and say, I just finished your series, uh, you know, on SoundCloud. That's the beauty of technology, which we'll talk more about. But, um, but you know, but in my capacity as, as Rebbe, and uh, having having those Rebbe Talmud or you know that that sort of sichas chaverim like I always say I'm not a Rebbe and by any stretch of the imagination I'm just a searching Jew and, and I'm zocha to sort of journey with many others that feel connected with what I'm connected with. But people ask me, you know, when 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 is the right time to put on a gartel? When is the right time you know to start growing payas? When is the right time bechule bechule? You know all these sorts of questions. And rooted in a tradition from Rabbi Nachman, which he said about himself. That I never, he said about himself, I never tell people what to do. And Rabbi Nassim described how Rabbi Nachman wouldn't conclusively tell a person what to do in terms of advice practically, but Rabbi Nachman would, would just contextualize. And I think that's also very, very emblematic of what Rabbi Nachman does with the world. And it's the same thing in Breslov. There's no real mode of dress that everybody goes by. Rabbi Nachman contextualizes. And then he lets you make your own decisions. But he says, let me start you off on a fair playing, on a, on a fair playing field, right? Let me level the ground so that you have a chance at life, right? And let me tell you how important joy is. And let me tell you how real Amuna is. And let me tell you that God is with you in all your downfalls. And then you can choose. You have the on all on all things. But, but, but to contextualize life. And so I don't tell people what to do. I try not to. I have a hard time telling myself what to do, but I try not to tell people what to do. But to contextualize and to tell them and to remind them that everything that I represent and everything that Rabbi Weinberger represents and everything that this neo-Hasidic movement, for lack of a better term, even though that term really you know began in a non-Orthodox setting and so we try not to really use it, um, but, in an, but in this, for lack of a better term, neo-Hasidic movement and this consciousness, it's about the inside. It's about the panemius. And we're worried that the more this sort of proceeds to the outside, it won't be like the stream flowing from a source of water into, into you know, into a into, in, into an offshoot that's consistent and that goes, but it'll be like a like a like a like an hourglass, you know, that the uh, that the sand drips out and 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 the more you start to focus on Anchitsonius. The Paninius goes, and that's just what we've seen. And so I don't tell people what to do, but I think that actions speak louder than words. And I've had people tell me that the the fact that you don't have a long beard, which by the way I probably couldn't, try, you know, if I try, if I tried, but I'm, I, you know, I, I don't know that I that I could if I tried. But you know, but but I but I but I don't wear, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Hasidic shalavush, and I don't and I don't grow my pace out. And there have been students, literally, that have confirmed my impression that by doing so, we're going to have a bigger impact, both in terms of communicating the message, as well as being able to embody this reality that you can still stay grounded within the yeshiva movement, and you don't have to move to tzfat, and you don't have to start wearing colorful scarves or tcheles. You can be a normal, healthy, well-adjusted husband, father, student, you know, a member of society of a regular shul, and look like everyone else. But there's a fire burning in your heart that transforms everything. That's the toaster oven to take your cake. That's the same ingredients out of the fridge. That's nice. I mean, it works. It works. But then you put it in a toaster oven and it's mashu acher. 
It's like Rib Joey, Rib Joey Newcomb says, Yesh Panimius, Yesh Chitainius, Vapanimius, Vareker. I was fascinating. My, we were listening to a song on Matsi Shabbos and we're singing and dancing to it. And my my daughter, seven, she's like, What what does Panimius mean? What does Chitainius mean? And I said to myself, How lucky we are that at seven years old she's able to have this concept of his insides, his outsides, and Vapanimius, Vareker. And that's the. You know, but I want to talk about Joey Newcomb for a second because this is important. Because, like I mentioned before, this. Consciousness is trying to capture that pre-institutionalized or uh, or primal sort of Hasidic energy as it existed in the base medrash of the Baal Shem Tev, as it existed in the in the in the Bati medrash of the Magid Mizrich and all of his students. Back then, it was a grassroots movement, and that's exactly what's happening today. It's a grassroots organic movement. It is starting from Jews all over the world that don't receive this from a rav. But they're oftentimes waking up to it in the course of their regular daily lives being exposed to the torchbearers of this movement that's so emblematic of the spirit of Hasidus has multifarious channels. That isn't just expressing itself in shiurim, which I'm doing. And isn't just expressing itself through, you know, various, various different art projects, for example, that people are involved with. You remember, thank you, Hashem El did a big art, art project. Whoever heard of art as inspiration? But that's what Hasidus is. And so Joey Newcomb and so many others, Eitan Katz, for example, has been doing this for years, or Shlomo Katz, even though he's more Rav and teacher, that's also something people don't know, than musician, but Shlomo Katz has also been doing this for years. Yosef Karduner has been doing this for years. Chaim Dub has been doing this for years. All the way back to Shlomo, ultimately, or Shlomo Kabbalah has been doing, you know, spent, spent 40 years of his life doing this. But this is, this is how it needs to happen. That people need to understand that there is more than one way to connect and that it's going to be the grassroots, simple Pashit Chevra. Even though Joey also, not to take away from the Hashivas of any of these people, or Joey's, you know, is a Rebbe in Yeshiva also, right? And, 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 and where do you think he gets that inspiration? Well, it comes from the Svar Makadashim, but it comes from these unlikely places. And in Rabbi Nachman, for example, and I wrote about this on Facebook a number of months ago in Torah Gimel. And Rabbi Nachman's lesson on music, which is the third lesson of the Kutumran, Rabbi Nachman connects music with the Ruach of Mashiach. David HaMelech, right? Where David Malka Mashiach, Mashiach is descended from David, was a musician. And there's something about this very deep kind of education that music is able to accomplish even more than text-based learning, that is able to impact, that's able to imperceptively have a very, very, very strong impact. And so I mentioned before there was this interchange between the Hasidic world and the non-Hasidic world where sort of there was concessions made on both sides where the Hasidim became a little bit more tame and the Litvisha world became a little bit more emotional. And that's obviously everything's with Hashkach al And that's why I say you don't have to identify as Hasidish. Just be with Panimis. Be with heart. I don't care what you are. Be the biggest Litvak in the world. And by the way, real Litvaks are with energy, with fire. With Renach Weinberg was a real Litvak, right? And he lived with Panimis and he lived with Chiyas. You look an Ali Shur, which every Mirbacher has on their shelves. I don't know if they're learning it, but they, but they all have it, right? If you look at the second Chelek in Ali Shur, which is after Revolbo, who was my father's Rebbe, which I mentioned, and my grandmother's Rebbe also in Lidingo in Sweden after the Second World War. And, and so he taught two generations. So I feel very connected with Rav Shlomo and, you know, Volba as well. And I'm learning, you know, the second Chelek after he was exposed to Rav Tzadik, after he was exposed to Hasidus. And you see, again, the same thing. You take off your glasses and it's a Hasidish Rebbe. Ramasha Feinstein and Darash Maisha, you take off your glasses. Says, Mamas, you're sitting in a, at a tish, right? The, the tires that he says, they're out of, out of this world, right? And so I don't care what you are. I don't care what you identify with, but the panemius, that's what it's about. And so I wrote over there that with this interchange, music is playing a tremendous role to impact, again, in an imperceptive way, to impact the mainstream. How many 
thousands of Litvisha Jews who never opened the Hasidic Sefer in their lives are driving down the street and playing Joey Newcomb's album and hearing Yesh Panimius, Yesh Chitzanius, Ikara Panimius, and the rest of the songs on that album, right? They're not just songs. And I told Joey this after. They're not songs. I think they're Tfilos. I told Joey, I said, listen, I never, ever buy music. Mamish, I never buy music. I don't really have time to listen to music. I never buy music. And I said, initially, I said, I'm buying your album just because I can't wait until it's on Spotify. And I have to buy your album. And then I listened to the whole album in one shot. And I called Joey up. I left him a message after. And I said, Joey, I said, I still never buy music. Because that wasn't music. Because your album is not music. Because your album is teachings is tyrus. Is tyrus. And by the way, on a lesser level, but it's also there, the impact that Avram freed and that Mordechai and David, both Chabad and Breslov respectively, or Mordechai and David being connected to Richard Meyer Morgenstern of Breslov, and Avram Fried obviously being a Chabad Chassid, the impact that their music has had. And again, it's a, it's a subconscious thing, but it, but it, but it impacts and it moves us closer. And so it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to understand that LPI is one channel. And LPI, we're also going to be doing music. I'm a musician, and we're also working on a project to bring the Breslov Shabbos Nugunim out to light in a, in a, in a new way, um, which we're working very heavily on. Mamish, as we speak, I'm recording vocals tomorrow night for one of the songs, so we're Mamish working on it. And, and we do want to incorporate music into it. But to understand that Hasidus, at its core, is the realization and the message to each and every Jew that no matter who you are, and no matter what your background is, and no matter what language you speak, and no matter how you dress, and no matter what your capabilities are, there is a way for you to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is the watchword of the movement. Really, the foundation of Hasidus is wrapped up into a Pasuk where Shlomo Amalek tells us, Bechal Drachecha Da'ehu. And it takes a little bit of darshaning because the word Da'ehu means know Him, know God in all your ways. But the Hasidic masters teach that the word Das can mean knowledge, but it could also mean intimate connection. And that's why we find it in the first context when the word Das is used is in the relationship between Adam and Chava, which means that they had that intimate relationship between husband and wife. And so say the Hasidic masters, you can build an intimate relationship with the Kaddish Baruch. You can connect to him on the deepest level, make him a reality in your life, not in some from, you know, way, but just in this beautiful way to understand that there's this energy, this in soap, not to limit God into that three-letter word God that we created as opposed to him creating us, that three-letter word. The Ain Sof, this infinite being, this infinite all-knowing power that has been with you from the womb, that understands every aspect of your life, that's with you all the time, accompanying you at every moment, you can know God through learning. You can know God through listening to Joey Newcomb's music. Everybody else's music. We're gonna to have to send in the recording. But to listen to, but and 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 through your work and through your occupation and through your hobbies and through a dinner at a restaurant for your wife's anniversary, you know, through your anniversary with your wife and through your birthday and 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 through your relationship with your children and through every single aspect of your life. There's an opportunity for intimacy to connect with the Kaddish Baruch and that is what we're missing. And so people fetch about the no talking in shul and they have rabbis on podcasts and everybody's wondering what we can do about this problem we have to bribe them and we have to make people sign contracts and we have to give out treats to the kids and to the adults and we have to why can't the answer just be that if people came into shul and understood that they're about to enter into an intimate meditative experiential communication with the master of the world who's their best friend with a capital B and a capital F and knows more about them and and to and before whom they can feel comfortable divulging their deepest secrets to anybody else they just wouldn't talk the experience is that when there's davening there's no talking 
in Rabbi Weinberger's Shul and Eish Kodesh, it's not because, which he also makes people sign a contract. That's also true. Right? That you have to commit not to talk. But there's davening there. There's davening there. And to people who never you want to. You want to. You want to and you are. So there's Pasha, no, there's no time for talking, right? Because you're so connected. Because it, you're so, it's, it's such a beautiful communicative experience. It's not something that we feel is forced upon us. Mitzvah, milash, and tzivoy. That's not our relationship with mitzvahs, that they're commanded upon us, that we have to do them, and this is our obligation and our chore, but rather mitzvah milashen tzavsa. The Aramaic word, which is also related to the root of tzivoy, to command, means tzavsa, means to connect. And when it's mitzvah milashen tzavsa, when our Avodah Hashem has that element of ava, and of course, it has to be a balance. That's one of the principles of LPI. One of the values of LPI is the balance between nigla and nister, between between agada and halacha. You know, those two things have to stay very, very much connected because when you begin to view halacha in the prism of agada, you realize that it itself is agadic. You realize that keeping every diktuk halacha is part and parcel of this relationship. So it becomes a beautiful thing. And it's no longer a purely technical, intellectual endeavor to study halacha, but it's the deepest intimacy with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So we have to keep those two things hand in hand together but when a person is connecting to this and when a person is connected to Allah in the prism of Agada and to keep this balance so that your Avodah Hashem is tinged and is leaning toward the aspect of Ava which our generation needs so desperately this love that parents need to be telling their children all the time expressly now my kid knows I love them no they don't no they don't and make it make it your business every day and as much as you can to whisper it to them to scream it to them to tell them and we need to feel this as adults because we're all grown-up children we're all little children inside and to our children but all of us in that relationship with Kodesh Baruch Hu, if we were to engage with the Vodas Hashem in this way of Ava in this way of Mitzvah Milash and Savsa Yiddishkeit would look very very different and that's why I say again, keep the institutions, keep the quantity, keep the six sons. This is a point I make very strongly in the book. We don't want to do away with anything, but we want to reinvigorate, reinfuse that experience with the lost princess of Yiddishkeit. That's the goal. That's fascinating. Just I, I want to unpack one thing you said. I, I thought it was a fascinating point that um, although Hasidus is deeply rooted in its Mesora and it's connecting to to previous generations, there's an aspect of it that, and I don't know if it's specifically Breslov, but that allows for expression anyway, which you mentioned, but also the fact that it's coming from people who didn't have any, who don't have any Hasidic background. And that um, is part of the answer to losing Hasidus in its ritual of today, of just institutionalizing it, is keeping it fresh and keeping it alive with, with other forms of expression. It's fascinating that uh, that interplay between the Mesorah, but also using new technologies and new music and new sounds and new Torah. Um, so that balance, That's I thought that was really fascinating. That's right. That's right. I mean... When you when you when you really you know begin like we mentioned before to learn the svarim, you do find you know that th- that there is a somewhat of a tension of opposites, and I'll just I'll just speak about one of them, which I just gave a shear on last week. But there are many, there are many, there are many, and it's nuanced. But one of the tension of opposites, for example, is that on the one hand, to many people it's confounding, it's a stira, it's a contradiction. On one hand, Hasidus is all about the simple man. And it's all about the value of even a tefillah, you know, like Maisim, you know, all the stories of the Vashemtov, of that little child who doesn't even know how to dab and he blows a whistling in Kippur and it's the highest thing in the world. Or you talk about, you know, this simple Jew who didn't even know 
who didn't even know, uh, uh, you know, when to dab in which tefillahs. And so he just had a sitter with all the tefillahs of the whole year. And every single day he would sit for five hours a day and say from the beginning of the sitter from Maida'ani all the way through the Kinnis of Tishabav and, 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 and Yom Kippur dabbing and, 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 and the Brachan Lulav and, and, and Menaira and, and say it all during the day. And to the Baal this was the highest thing. And he was able to do miracles and all these, all these amazing things. On the one hand, you have this value that even the simplest avoda of a Jew, even without Kavana, even without Lashma, just going through ah, how precious it is to and then on the other hand, you have sharp, sharp texts, sharp texts in the Sefer Ma'ari 9, particularly if you look in Parshas Yisrael. Parshas Yisrael, you should all know to yourself and all the listeners, I'm sure you know, that Parshas Yisrael is like one of the foundational, foundational, uh, uh, you know, text sources for many of the important Hasidic ideals, Parshas Yisrael in Ma'ari 9. is very, very important. We're actually learning with one of our programs, now we're learning Ma'ari 9 with LPI. And uh, that's that's the Chernobyl Rebbe, who was the founder of the of the Skver dynasty that ultimately has its roots in Chernobyl, and um, was a Talmud of the Magad of So that's the Maranaim and Parshish Yisrael. But he has very very sharp lishonos, very sharp. If you look in Taldus Yaakov Yosef, the first Hasidic sefer that was ever published by Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polonia, the primary student of the Balshemter, or the Balshemter scribe, one of his earliest students, who was initially a big misnagid. We talked about Masar, which we'll get to, and he wrote uh, Taldus Yaakov Yosef. The sefer was was banned. I mean, people couldn't handle it. The way that he castigated these heartless Tamid Chachamim and these, you know, I mean, for some Shal Sheker, you know, these 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 rabbis, etc., etc., and the rabbinic establishment that became so wrapped up in the mind, it became so wrapped up in the quantity that they lost all the all the simple Jews who thought that there was no hope because they couldn't relate because they didn't have a Yiddish kind of a Chol very very sharp you have castigating this how could a person serve Hashem without Kavana you have you have to have Ava in Europe you look in Paraklam and Zion and Tanya if you look in so many different places you have to have the passion and without it that vote doesn't go up and Annabelle Shemtov once for example couldn't walk into a shul because he said that the basement is just packed and they said there's nobody in the shul and he said it, ah, it's not packed with people it's packed with tefillahs because none of the tefillahs go up so on the one hand, right, so, so you have these two seemingly contradictory aspects where on the one hand, even the simplest expression, the, the littlest thing that any Jew does is mamash the highest. On the other hand, you have mamash a belittling of even a full, beautiful Abedah Hashem. There, Rabbi Nachman, for example, in Torah Samach says in, in Lesson 60 in the Kutumran, he has a Lashon over there. He says you could have a person who serves Hashem his whole life, but he's sleeping and Hashem has no nachas from it. The Lashon that he uses, which is very much connected with the lost princess, when the viceroy falls asleep and he has to wake himself out of that, which is a conversation for a different time, but that's in all, all in the book, which you'll read about Bezer Hashem. So how do you put these two things together, right? And the answer is, the answer is, is that Hasidus took into account the winters and the summers of the Jewish experience. Hasidus took into account the humanity of what it is to live as a human being with the human condition and the varied aspects of what our lives are, are, are or the terrains on which our lives are lived as husbands, as father, as fathers, as community members, as children, as educators, whatever's going on. And Hasidus basically, and this was another big, 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 you know, pillar of, 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 of my obsession and fascination with Hasidus, borderline obsession with Hasidus, was, was, the, was the way in which there was no area of my life that was any more outside of the framework of Abad Hashem. It used to be that my learning and my davening was Abad Hashem, and then when I left the base Medrash, it's life. And then when I'm engaged with Havadah Hashem, hopefully if I have any level of consciousness and I'm not just speeding through tefillah and checking my phone, whatever it is, you know, but that's Havadah Hashem and the rest of life is just is living. And Hasidus 
like I mentioned before, Ibn Akhman contextualizes, right? Hasidus recontextualizes or reframes life as right? And so Hasidus understands that there are different times. In Breslau, for example, the two big, big watchwords of this, uh, of this understanding is Baki Baratso, Baki Bishov, which means to be an expert in running and an expert in returning. What that means is, is that Rabbi Nachman has something to offer you if you're in a Shas Aliyah, with a Ratsai, if you're running, and also when you're in a Shas Yerida, that Rabbi Nachman sometimes is giving you the biggest ultimate musr, how much you need to do. And if you look in Sikha Saran, for example, Rabbi Nachman wants you to finish Kalatar Kula every single year, Vasikin, Tikin Chatzois, you know, Shmir Seinayim, Shmir Sabris on the highest levels. And, you know, the, the, the aspect of, of watching what you eat, Taivas Achil, which Bechlal has left the conversation in the, in the mainstream firm world. We don't talk about it at all. Taivas Achil, that, that's even on our radar, Bechlal. That's on the one hand, but then on the other hand, the Nachman tells you that when you're in Sha'ol Tachtas, that even if you've fallen into a place, there's a Shonas in the Kutel Lachas, a person who transgresses the whole entire Torah 800 times, etc. Hashem is with you, and Hashem is holding your hand, and He loves you. Again, contradictory. But the answer is, is that as human beings in flux, we need different teachings for different times. And so in a Shas Aliyah, we need to be connected to the understanding that we need to shoot for everything. In a Shas Yerida, we need to have that understanding that and that Ratzon is the Iker, and that the and that the most important thing is trying as much as you can. So we do see this interplay of, of different contradictory aspects. And now we come back after the very lengthy introduction to the question, I apologize, which is very, very important, is that on the one hand, you see the Hasidus has this fire of individual uh, of individualism and individuality, and this fire of or, of origin, uh, originality, right? And that's on one hand. On the other hand, you see that for certain Hasidic movements, it is very, very, very ritualized. It is very, very Misora-oriented. So how do we reconcile these two things? And that's the question, right? And so I was just trying to paint the portrait that Hasidus Bechlal has many, many of these different tensions, right? And that's where life is lived. A good life is lived in a tension of opposites, right? Many people hang out in the middle, but they're just in the middle because they were in the middle. But if you live in the middle because you're being pulled to two extremes at once, it's, it's pulsating, right? And that's where we're trying to live in that, in that tension of opposites. So I would say that there's different chinas. There's different aspects. On the one hand, there are certain chasidus in that are very, very ritual. But within the ritual, if they were learning the text, they would be able to find their individualism within the originality. And then there are other chasidus in that are that are very, very focused more on that initial pre-institutionalized spirit, which I would say Breslov is very much part of Rabbi Nachman, only two generations after the Baal Shem Tov felt that he needed to reveal what he revealed to the world because of the institutionalization in two generations. It was the Baal Shem Tov's great-grandson. He felt already that it was becoming, that they were losing it, that they were losing. Can you imagine? Two generations. So that's what it, so that was, that's what, that's what it was about. I'll just, you know, mention one other cute anecdote that I think, that I think, uh, is, is, is relevant here is that one of the Hasidic masters, after he took over his, uh, uh, you know, from his father, the Hasidim, you know, in many dynasties, that's how it is, a dynasty. It goes from father to son, right? But Anshal Kedoshim, right? They're just by virtue of being born from a tzaddik, they have a special, you know, a spiritual status, which uh, is not often the case, but many times is the case. And um, the Hasidim saw that this Rebbe was not doing anything that his father did. So Mamash not continued them in hugging. He wasn't continuing that hug as he wasn't And they were confounded by this. They, they were confused. They, they, they were a little bit upset, perhaps, especially the older Hasidim that their whole lives, you know, lived the Hasidus a certain way. And I mean, here the Tish was in the morning instead of at night. He was doing his own thing. So they came to the Rebbe to complain. And they said, Rebbe, I don't understand. They said, you're not following the Messiah of your father. You're not carrying out the 
Hanhagos, of the way that this Hasidus was always, you know, through the generations, certainly the way that your father did it. And he looked at them with confusion. He said, what are you kidding? He said, I'm exactly like my father. He said, my father did his own thing. And I'm doing my own thing. And I'm exactly like my father. So there's a way in which you can have a misora, but it's a misora of individualism. You understand? So that's what Hasidus is. It's a misora. And throughout the generations, in order to preserve the quantity aspect, we needed to have a, a you know a mode of dress and a language. And who knows what Hasidus would be if they didn't have that, right? But on the other, and that's why I keep on saying we don't come to tear it down. We need both. We need the princess and the six sons. We need the quality and the quantity. We need the mitzvah and the tzavsa. We need both the yira and the ava. It's about a balance of both. And it's about reinvigorating this, the framework and the structure of what we have with the spirit of what we've lost. All right. Well, well said, Rabbi Yaakov. That's that's the um, in essence you've spoken to the to the to the what to what we're doing um, with LPI and the fire that that's within it. And I want to just transition into the how. How are we getting this message out? How are we going to um, attract people to this? Obviously, uh, you've written two books, a third on its way, as you mentioned, and that's one way, but there's so much power out there at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips and at our, on our microphones and, and everything like that. And, uh, what are, how do you, how do you, really the question starts like this. How do you balance that, the writing of books and the, um, distribution of it online so that it's like almost to speak, just to speak to paradoxes that was Sure. Right. <laughs> right. And so let's move into that aspect. I, 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 and, and again, I think that we should launch into this aspect of the conversation based on the context of the understanding of Hasidus, which is the concept, like we discussed before, of Bechol Drachecha Da'eu. Oh, I love that because I don't think, I don't believe that they're separated. I haven't found someone who's passionate about what they're doing, who's not passionate about how they're getting it out as well. Because the two speak to each exactly other. Exactly right. Exactly right. For the most, you know, technologically speaking, right? And and societally, in terms of those uh, ways of living aspect, we're very wary. We're very cautious. And we've always been, to our credit, most, most of the time. But I'll remind you that Chabad was broadcasting the Rebbe Sichas online through TV and through radio. And they had this control room, which was way ahead of the time, not just ahead of the time of the firm world, which of course it was, but way ahead of their time globally. What Chabad was doing was, was, was unbelievable, technologically speaking. The operations that they run are not to be believed. Where does that come from? And that comes from There is a hashkafa within Hasidus, and I think that Dr. Rabbi Norman Lamb has written a book about this, um, or at least he discusses within his book the strange sort of meeting point, the unlikely uh, friendship you know, theologically between the modern Orthodox and the intensely Hasidic, at least those that are connected to the Hasidic Ashkafa, in that both, for different reasons, both are open to using the, uh, the you know, the, the, the reality of the society around them and to engage with that society in a deeper way. And so Chabad, which like I mentioned before, is connected to the teachings of Hasidus and therefore is connected to the Neshama of Hasidus beyond, you know, the simple framework of it, even though Chabad has plenty of that too, and Breslau has plenty of that. Again, I don't want to generalize. There's Yish, 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 right? There are a lot of Karliners who are also on fire and etc. You understand? But in, 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 but in, in Chabad, because they have that sort of stamp of approval from the Baal Shem Tav HaKadosh, Bechol Drechechadeh, God is to be found in everything, there's no place vacant of him, they we're able to look at technology and see an opportunity rather than a challenge and say, okay, let's embrace it and let's utilize it and let's, and let's go for it. So very much myself in the same way, being founded on this 
pre-institutionalized hashkafa of Hasidus that I connect very, very deeply with. And that has not just transformed my life, but has saved my life, literally saved my life. I would venture perhaps to say physically, actually, but certainly emotionally and certainly spiritually. And I'm a different person. And uh, and I've seen that transform it, transformation happen in front of my eyes over the past couple of years just by bringing people in and being able to experience that paradigm shift, right? So Hasidus, which I'm very committed to, is uh, is giving me this sort of, this sort of, um, like I mentioned, like a stamp of approval to be able to go out into the world and be able to engage with technology in a healthy way, in a positive way, and to be able to reach people. And I want to make one comment that, you know, it's 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 just a mitzvah. On the one hand, it may sound a little bit, you know, like uh, it's 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 The mitzvah is that decisions about the lifestyle of the Frum community are largely being made by the by the am. By the people themselves. With regard to internet usage and with regard to WhatsApp on phones, for example, when did any rub get up? When did any guggle get up and say that everyone should have WhatsApp on their phones? Who said that? In my, to my knowledge, nothing has changed since the 2004, whatever it is, internet asifa, when they got up there and they said, absolutely don't have it. And if you must have it, filters, 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 filters. And to be fair, I mean, WhatsApp for most people is not a must. It's not a must, right? Many, let's be honest. Everybody says, oh, I need it for, for this. I need it for that. But we have a lot of chats that aren't that. And we spend a lot of time with memes and making jokes and, and, and forwarding around uh, Trump things and Biden things and this thing and that thing and Corona jokes until you get it. And then it's not so funny anymore. All these, all these different, all these different things. So who made that decision? And the answer is, is that we're seeing a strength. And Cook talked about this a lot. A lot. And Rav Cook to me, you see him on the wall behind me, Rav Cook to me really uh, uh, also serves as a paradigm historically for this blend of halacha and agada, a Talmud Chacham of almost unparalleled uh, uh, prominence who studied under uh, under under the Nitziv in Volazhin, who came very much from the yeshiva movement from his father's side and was Chabad on his mother's side and then went to engage deeply with all the Hasidic masters, particularly Breslov, which Reb Kook once uttered an enigmatic statement in Yiddish where he said, Ich bin Rabbi Nachman, he said in Yiddish, I am Rabbi Nachman, whatever that means. But, uh, but, 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 you know, so I, I connect very deeply with Rav Kook. And many people are like, what does Hasidus have to do with Rav Kook? But once you understand that the Hasidus that I'm talking about is not the Hasidus that most often comes to mind, but it's a, it's an intellectual and emotional and spiritual revolution, you understand that this was Rav Kook. This mamash was Rav Kook, right? So Rav Kook spoke about before Mashiach. The strengthening of the of the of the of the collective soul of the Jewish nation, where we're going to have the courage to be able, in the way of Hillel, who said in the Gemara Sachim, that the Jewish nation, if they're not prophets, they're sons of prophets, and that our souls collectively, in the, in the simplest Jew, is connected to a very deep deep intuitive feel for the Ratzon Hashem that then is starting from a grassroots sort of way and then the Rabbanim get WhatsApp. Why do they have WhatsApp? They need WhatsApp because all the because their whole Kehillah has, has WhatsApp. Now where did it start from? Did the Rav get up and say to the Kehillah, Chevra, it's Mutter. No, no Rav said that. But then where did he get WhatsApp on his phone? And the answer is, is because there are paradigm shifts that are happening from the bottom up. From the bottom up. If you look, for example, at Mishpacha magazine, 
What Mishpacha magazine has managed to accomplish, the issues that they have managed to raise to the public discussion by laymen, by people who are, you know, just, just for example, the reader's right, right? Or all of those inbox, I don't know exactly what they call it, you know, that segment of the newsletter. But we have people that are talking about things, blogs, for example, podcasts, where they're not Rabbanim, and they're not people that we would, you know, we would look to for halachic guidance. But at the same time, we are becoming more confident with regard to what we have to say and changes being affected from the bottom up from the bottom up. And so we find that the majority of the from, and I would say the centrist, right? Not modern Orthodox and also not very yeshivish and also not very Hasidish. But the centrist, you know, I would talk about Muncie. I would talk about Five Towns. I would talk about Flatbush in Brooklyn. I would talk about different out-of-town communities that align with the yeshiva system, but at the same time are working, balabatim. This is where they are. They are on their phones. They are on Facebook. They are on WhatsApp. They are on Twitter, increasingly on Twitter. They are on Instagram, right? They are on the social media platforms for the better, for the worse. Again, everything needs to be in moderation. Forget about spiritually. I think you can go absolutely mental. I think that, you know, very much so. We are being exploited by these companies. You know, like there was a documentary that came, uh, came out about it called The Social Dilemma, which is, which is really frightening. You know, uh, there was some backlash against it, but I think it's very eye opening, you know, to, to realize like what's behind the screen and how you're being manipulated. But at the same time, we believe again, it's out there. People are utilizing it and we have to go ahead and combat all the darkness that's possible. And again, Proceed with caution. Absolutely. And this is not going to say that I'm anybody to give a haskama on what you should do. But yeah, anyway, to making your own decisions. Yeah, anyway, didn't get a haskama to have Instagram, right? You, you spoke to your rub and your rub said you, have, you should have Instagram? No, right? <laughs> so anyway, you're doing it. So I need to go ahead and be where you are. Again, with a word of caution, filters are of exceeding, exceeding importance. And this is not a frumkite thing. Again, I never, when I talk about the Indian of Tikana Bris or Pagama Bris, I don't talk about the Gehenim you're going to get. I talk about the Gehenim you're living because it's much more real. It's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to destroy your, your, your relationships. It's going to destroy your, your joy for life. And it's going to, it's going to, it's, so forget about spiritually speaking, just emotionally. Right? The Torah is supposed to give us Olam Abba in this world. That's what it's about. Forget about Sechar of Olam Abba. And so very, very important to have filters. But this is where people are hanging out. And this is where I am attempting to reach them. So the books is for the, it's for everybody, right? The books is also, there's a, there's a mode of education that comes through written word that, uh, simple sound bites and little short clips. You don't get that, right? You don't get that. And there's a way of really pouring your heart into a book that I cannot do in a Facebook post. And there's Shabbos where many people are reading books. And it's something that you can have at your side that you put on your night table. And that even though you may not be reading it, but it's on your bookshelf and you remember it and it's be, you know, like your fate, that stage of life was associated with this book and so on. So books, that's my primary mode of, of communication. I enjoy writing. I've been writing my whole life. And I think that I'm getting a little bit better at it as time goes on. But I, but I, but I really do enjoy writing. And I love the freedom of being able to really to really lay out an idea without needing, you know, to feel pressure to say something profound in one sentence. Right? I like having that freedom because that's what Hasidus is. It's, it's not, excuse me, Hasidus is not you know, little sound bites. If you look in Torah art from the Balatan, you look in Torahs from the Kutumran, they go on for pages and pages and pages and pages. So yes, we're sending out little quotes, which is very important to keep people engaged. It's shareable. It's profound. It's thought provoking. And that's on a daily basis. We're sending out quotes from the Hasidim text space, like we said before, to drive people to look up the text. That's why we give a source for everything. We want you to engage with the text itself. Everything's been translated. Kemat. Everything's on Safaria. Kemat, you know, it's totally free, open source. Everybody's able to go 
ahead and to engage with these with these texts. But uh, but the book is very important because that's going to really build the hashkafic foundation to lay it out. And that is what the story of our lives is. It is a textbook. It is not just another book. I don't know that I'll write another book anytime soon, really, because I'm really focused on pushing this and marketing this as the textbook to sort of contextualize, to sort of create this parable or metaphoric background to, and to understand what this incredible movement toward Hasidus is in the firm world. Like, what is it all about? Why are we seeing mainstream performers like Eitan Katzen and, 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 and Yosef Nukem quoting these sources and speaking in a way that nobody heard in Yeshiva? What's that coming? What's that all about? Why are we seeing kids dropping out of high school and then four years later you see them growing little pays and, and, and carrying a whole set of sperm under their, under their arms that you never saw before on a bench in the basement? Just, what's going on? Why are thousands of people listening to Rabbi Weinberger packing in to a Lagba Omer event, packing into a H. Kodesh Hilula? They have 4,000-something people, more than that, you know, who are, who, are, who are listening to all of his stuff and are, and, are, and, are, and are active and are focused and Uman is blowing up, you know, not this past year, but 60,000 people. What is it? What is it? These are otherwise normal people. These are, these are your next door neighbor in Flatbush, right? These are otherwise healthy, normal, well-adjusted people. What is it all about? And I don't believe that there is yet a conclusive and comprehensive uh, expression, you know, a sort of textbook for this. And that is really what I hope with all of my heart and soul to have accomplished with this book. And this is what the theological foundation of the Lost Princess Initiative is. It's the book and then it's the course that enables us to really isolate the key principles and to learn about them inside, in their context, and then to go ahead and to push it out on social media, through different social media content, using Zoom, which was huge, you know, over, over Corona. I mean, it, Corona was a terrible, terrible disaster and devastating thing that, you know, wrecked how much havoc and destruction. But I think that, you know, if we can find, uh, uh, you know, a silver lining, I think that, Corona really moved the firm community much more ahead technologically. You had people using tablets who would never have used it before and all of a sudden realized, like, this can really help me. Like, this is not the enemy. Everything that a Kodesh Baruch created can be elevated. It's what's the, what the Balatani calls the Klipas Noga, right? It's that realm that's in between total Ra, which is Usr, and total Tov, which is a mitzvah. It's Mutter. It's Mutter with the right you know, with the right conditions, but to be able to engage with it. And um, Israel Hashem, we have many, many programs that are planned for the future. Like I said, tonight we're announcing a brand new series, bringing in Ryakov Danishevsky, who is one, also one of the Mashviyim of this new movement, young, dynamic, eloquent, being able to really, really, you know, uh, express what we're all about. And uh, LPI hopes again, you know, to bring in all of the different mashpiim of the movement. And that means musicians, that means artists, that means all the Talmudim of Rabbi Weinberger who have been creating their own little mini Ish Kodesh movements, you know, throughout the world, like Rav Shlomo Katz and Joey Rosenfeld and Rabbi Bergen Mavaseret and so many, so many other names, you know, that just Im immediately come to mind. But we've had 30 speakers or so, you know, and we want to really, we, we want to become that organization that's focused on the Neshama. That's focused on bringing these people together who know how to speak this language, who look like me and you, regular, regular, regular guys, but are speaking a different language that really speaks to the core of what this generation is missing. I'll just close with uh, Tyra from the Baal Shem Tov that I think really puts this whole thing into focus. The Baal Shem Tov taught because the Gemara says that in a daima, you can't compare a person who learns something a hundred times, mea pa'amim, le mea pa'amim ve'echad. To a person who learns something 101 times. That's the Pashib shot. That's a simple understanding that if you learn a Gemara 100 times and then you learn it 101 times, psh, it's, it's, it's just different. It's different. That's what the Gemara tells us. Many different understandings of what that is. That's the basic explanation. Said the Baal Shem Tov, a grammatical problem. Why doesn't it say, Lemea ve'echad pa'amim? 
You can't compare a person who learns something mea pa'amim, you know, to a person who learns something halaymit mea ve'echad pa'amim. What's mea pa'amim ve'echad? Says the Baal Shanta. He says mea pa'amim is talking about the learning of the Torah that you're doing. But the ve'echad is talking about the echad yachad miyuchad, about the master of the world. And ain't a doyme. You can't compare somebody who learns that same a hundred times to a person who learns a hundred times but with HaKadosh Baruch with the Echad. And so I say this, and I said this from the beginning. Baruch Hashem, we have a hundred organizations in the firm world, right? We have organizations for everything. We have organizations to help people on every level. We have organizations spiritually and societally, and like I mentioned before, all the different beautiful quantitative aspects of Abedus Hashem, and it's unbelievably miraculous and givat, right? It's, it's incredible. LPI seeks to be the one organization for the Echad. For the echad. We need the mea pa'amim. But I want to focus people in on the echad. To re-infuse and reinvigorate every single aspect of our relationship with Avodah Hashem. Bechol jrechecha with da'e, with intimacy. With a, with, a, with, a, with a conscious relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, who loves you. And that's, and that's really what it's all about. Fascinating. I, you know, I, I pretend that this podcast is from my listeners, but really it's just a way for me to talk to you and talk to people who have passion. Uh, so I, I'm not, I'm not releasing it. It's just, I'm just kidding, but it's, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the passion is what speaks to me and the fire and the beauty of loving what you do. And, and we've missed that for a while. And I think you're, you're, you're re-returning that and Bez Hashem should be the Ve'echad. So if people, what are some of your, um, your your best channels for people to find you, um, subscribe to you. Any links I can put in the I can put in the show notes so people could find it as well. Uh, really suggest that if a person wants to really really connect with what we're doing and really become one of the chevra, WhatsApp is the way to go because then you know you really receive all of our content. You see updates on status. You're engaged on a daily level. WhatsApp to me is the biggest social media asset. We have about a thousand people now uh, receiving oh, wow. our stuff every day, and uh, and we're just starting. We're ju- I'm telling you, we are just getting warmed up, Mamish. Uh, literally, we're just getting warmed up. Right, so we're just starting. That's, um, that's, that's WhatsApp. Um, Facebook, we have a Facebook page as well as my own personal page, which I post things that are separate. You know, I post my own thoughts and my own personal ruminations on life and different, you know, things that are happening. Um, we are on Instagram as well. Again, you'll see all of the links. I assume, you know, you will attach the links to this. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We are on WhatsApp. We are on YouTube. All of our videos, we have B'chaz Yashem. We're coming up to 50 short shiurim, up to five minutes from some of the most dynamic teachers in the Jewish world, giving shiurim, mini shiurim in in Hasidus, right? Really based on text, which is a remarkable thing. So we did, the first series was on Sefer Kedusha Slevi. We have 122 quotes, which is Hashem on our website, which is not yet launched. And so I can't tell you what the address is yet, but Be'ez Hashem, that'll be launched and everything's going to be on there with many, many, many more incredible resources. But 122 quotes with all of the videos from the Mashbiyam, two a week. And so you'll get that on Facebook, you'll get that on Instagram, you'll get that on, on, on WhatsApp, but YouTube, you can find all those videos. And, uh, you know, all I can say is that I I hope people will go out and buy the book. Be'ez HaShem, you'll see it advertised in the mainstream publications. And um, I want to make it clear that this is just, I mean, I know perhaps every author says this, but honestly, this is not just another book. And I can say that even with regard to my other books, it's not just, those books are in one category. This book is a, is a textbook. It's a, it's a game changer. It's a, president, it's a presentation of a, of a hashkafa shlema that can absolutely change your life. All right, Rabbi Yaakov, thank you. Do you have any last messages that you need to spread and you want to spread here on the pod. We don't need 
for more people to be speaking about Hasidus or using the word Hasidus or speaking about the Tzaddikim to believe that the R of the Baal Shem Tov is spreading and continues to spread and is growing. There are different subtle um, indicators that we're getting closer and closer in the sense that if you look at the Hasidish, you know, if you look at the yeshivish world, right, how many yeshivas now host a Ruach Shabbos, right, or now have Kumzitzin, which they never, ever would have had, like I mentioned before, only 30 years ago, you couldn't have a guitar in, in well, not 30 years ago, only, only, you know, 50 years ago, you couldn't have a guitar in Long Beach, right, or, or, or such a thing was looked down upon and so on. So, is it Hasidish? By any stretch of the imagination, it's not. By any stretch of the imagination, it's not. But, um, but the impact is there. And you have some of the most popular speakers, right, who are getting to the Balabatim that are no longer in the yeshiva framework. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, people wouldn't associate that with the Baal Shem Tov's life, but it is. It is. And it's presented in, in, its, in its own way. And so all of these things from all angles, like I mentioned before, the music aspect and, you know, the, psych- the psychologist's aspect and the art aspect and more and more and more, the wave of the Baal Shem Tov is washing over this world. And that's exactly what Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov. When, Mal- when the Baal Shem Tov had Aliyah and Shama, and he met the and he met the soul of Mashiach and the and the Heichel of Mashiach on a Rosh Hashanah toward the end of the Balshemtov's life, which he wrote in a famous letter to Gershon Kitaver, his brother-in-law. He asked Mashiach this most ultimate important question. He says, "When are you coming?" Amos Ikasi Mar. What did Mashiach tell him? Kishia Futsu Mayanasecha Hachutza. When your streams extend outward, and is there any? greater indicator that we're mamish at the threshold, that there's such an intense interest in Hasidus today. And this is the point. It doesn't say, you know, to the, to the Jewish world. It says, which means that there are going to be, when Mashiach comes, areas and segments and sects of Judaism that have nothing to do with Hasidus as Hasidus. But the art of the Baal Shem Tov will have penetrated and saturated that as well. Even again, undercover, imperceptibly, from a grassroots movement up, from just a societal standpoint of people, just it's like it's like natural selection in a certain way, you know, weeding out those things that are not relevant and opening up, our, you know, our collective neshama to that which is relevant. And so when Mashiach comes, Be'ezer Hashem, we're going to be able to see the impact that this one neshama, the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, and his great-grandson, Rabbi Nachman Brasov, who really carried that torch and deepened it, and the Chabad movement, and all the different Hasidus, and with all the Sfarim and Sadiqim, we're going to see that mosaic that they created and the effect that they had. And if LPI can be a part of that in this generation, Again, you know, it's the biggest uh, privilege of my life. All right, there you have it, folks. Yaakov Klein from the Lost Princess Initiative. My key takeaway was this idea that he was talking about that in everything you do, you know him. I always say that I'm the most annoying person to watch a movie with because the whole time I'm thinking about philosophy and, you know, the worst is I watch a good Marvel movie and I'm stuck in the philosophy and the philosophical implications of it. Um, But I think there's an aspect of that that appreciates, in what he's saying, that appreciates the Becholder Chachadeo, everything you do. Um, I also like the thing that everything's thought about in in the Lost Princess Initiative, that he keeps it text-based and that he's trying to um, reach people with Chasidus through the way that Chasidus tried to reach people. And I, I really appreciated that also. Thank you for listening again, guys. Next week, we have an awesome pod with Simi Lerner, who's also on The Intentional Jew. You can check out his podcast on intentionaljew.com. And as always, keep
keep 